Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to recognize your voice in Jesus' name. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd who died for his sheep. I have a hundred or more leadership books on my shelf. Each one, by the way, teaches the exact same lesson, how to improve your organization, how to take it from where it's at and lead it to the next step. But each one also has a different shtick. See, even though the lesson doesn't change, the way it's presented has to. It's something to get your attention, something to differentiate it from the million other books on leadership. How do you think Jesus' book on leadership would sell? I can see it now. The best leader is the leader who dies for his company. That would provide for some rather interesting um, discussion around the board of directors table, don't you think? There's a parable in Matthew 25 about sheep and goats, and Jesus separates them according to what they did. The sheep are on the right, the goats are on the left, and the parable is not really about being good or not being good. I know we like to simplify it down to that, but it just doesn't work. You see, sheep and goats have a lot in common, but sheep are not goats, and goats are not sheep. Before we make this about animals and go down the species and subspecies path and start analyzing DNA and trying to figure out whether it was unfair that the the goats were treated the way they were just because they were goats, uh, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus' parables are a lot simpler. They're designed to teach us something. Neither the sheep nor the goats are good in and of themselves. Notice that? Neither the sheep nor the goats are good in and of themselves. Neither are doing what they are doing because they're expecting to be saved by what they are doing. In fact, they don't even seem to notice the shepherd Jesus. That's the reason for that whole, when did we see you, Jesus, naked and hungry and in jail? And See, both sides say that. In other words, both of them are simply doing what they are doing. Now, when we do for others whatever it is that we do for them. It cannot be a means to an end in the sense that we're helping them so that Jesus will love us more and let us into heaven. You see, we do what we do because it is what we have been called to do. Jesus would not have us see one another as a means unto an end. In other words, you're only here so I can get into heaven, and I'm only here so you can get into heaven. And so I take care of you, and you take care of me, and then Jesus goes, oh, you guys are so wonderful. Yeah, let me open the gate and let you into heaven. Jesus is here so both of us can get into heaven by learning to love him first. And only by learning to love him are we going to learn to love one another, truly love one another. And that leads us to I'm the good shepherd. Good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, dead on the cross, God reveals the depths and the lengths to which he will go in order to save us. If we were to take the Bible literally, a dead shepherd would leave us alone, afraid, and most importantly, unprotected. What good is a dead shepherd? I mean, if our shepherd died protecting us from one bad wolf, well, there are a million other wolves out there ready to devour us. Game over. And and by the way, having a series of new good shepherds, not going to work. When the shepherd says, I will die for you, there must be something more than the dying. Now, stepping outside of the parable and back to the gospel, belonging to a crucified God or a dead shepherd wouldn't do us any good. 
but belonging to a crucified and resurrected God, a crucified and resurrected shepherd, that's a whole different ballgame. A few weeks ago, someone asked me to explain God to them. Every time there is a tragedy, whether it's personal or whether it's in the world, people are trying to understand God. I have to be honest. I can't. I can't. I can't boil God down to something that you can say, oh, thank you, that little seven-word bumper sticker explains everything, and now I'm happy. See, God told the prophet Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. And then God went on to say, my ways are higher than yours. And by the way, that's not God calling us dumb. It's not him, you know, just trying to, to be, make us be quiet. It's God saying, we don't have the ability to understand and embrace the things that we're trying to understand and embrace. In 1 Corinthians 13, right in the middle of his big, long love is speech, uh, St. Paul says, then I shall know and understand fully, even as I am fully known and understood. Paul says, when we get to heaven, we will finally be able to understand everything. And he's telling us we're going to have to be patient until that happens. Um, it's not easy to trust God and take all this by faith and be patient, which is why Paul points out that even though we may not fully understand and, and know right now, we are fully known and understood by God. Now, not a consolation prize. It's actually a promise of the highest order. So if you had a choice to be fully known by God or to fully understand everything, which would you choose? Now think about it. Would you rather be fully known by God or would you rather understand everything? What would it be? See, that's what Satan asked Adam and Eve when he said, yeah, I know you know this much, but how would you like to know the difference between good and evil? Meaning you get to know what evil is. Now, see, understanding something doesn't change anything if you aren't God. See, when I understand why something happened, if I can't, don't have the power to change it, what understanding might help me feel a little bit better, but to be honest, when I ask to understand something, what I'm really asking is I want the power to change it. Now, having a God who understands everything, including us, who has the ability to prepare us, equip us, and love us through whatever we're going through, see, that's something that I need, and it's something that I want. St. John is known for his poetic speech. You know, that whole John chapter one thing at the oh, Christmas? Yeah. But this time it's Jesus who loads the story up with metaphor after metaphor. Sheeps, shepherd, gates, doors, robbers, thieves, voices. And, 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 and while we call this Good Shepherd Sunday, we probably should rethink it. Uh, twice he says, I am the gate, so maybe this should be gate Sunday. He is the Good Shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, but he's also the one that opens the gate to heaven. Let's switch to the gate metaphor for a few minutes because I think we're going to have a much better chance of writing a leadership book on opening gates than the whole shepherd who dies for your sheep thing. Think about all the gates in your life. Who controls those gates? Are the gates open or closed? Who built those gates? Uh, do they keep things in or are they meant to keep things out? Are they locked or, or can you freely move in and out of them? Do they have a spring so they automatically close behind you? Is there a cost to go through the gate? Who were the gates created for? And is there someone there who manages access to the gate? 
It really helps if we know some context. Immediately before our verses today, it's the story of Jesus healing the man born blind. The Pharisees were mad at Jesus for healing this guy on the Sabbath. Now, the Pharisees were also mad at the guy for getting healed. And they were actually mad at God for allowing it to happen. They were some very unhappy people. Now, they wanted to put up a gate and lock it so that nobody could do anything, go anywhere, or even think anything without their permission. They wanted to be the gatekeeper so that you and I and everybody else had to completely and totally rely on them for everything. They had a real God complex. Now, when Jesus hears what the Pharisees did to the man who used to be blind, he shows up and he says, look, I came into the world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. Moving that into our metaphor for today. Think of it this way. Jesus came to open gates that others have closed that should not have been closed and to close gates that others should not have left open. See, fences are built to protect things. But, but if you want to have access to whatever you are protecting, you've got to put in a gate. Now, and gates decide whether you keep things in or keep things out or a little of both. There are a lot of people standing inside and outside fences trying to figure out who belongs where, where the gate is. Should they be inside? Should they be outside? Who should be inside? Who should be outside? I mean, how many times have you had to decide who to invite or who to let in? You have five tickets or, or there's only room for 12 at the table or you can only afford 50 people at the wedding reception. How do you decide? Those are gate moments. And at that moment, you are the gatekeeper. But even the gatekeeper has to have rules such as, well, these people have access, these people do not, these people can come and go freely, these cannot, this is how much I can afford, in other words, the people who can come and go, so the gate has to lock after this many people come in. It's the way of life. Now, for Jesus' followers, it is also a way of faith as we try to figure out where everybody belongs in the whole Jesus story. All through the Bible, there are two groups, those who love God and those who don't. And it has unfortunately become common for the church, despite Jesus' plea in the garden right before his crucifixion, that we all be one as he and the Father is one. Instead, the church divides ourselves up into our own sheepfolds. Now, there are things that by necessity separate people in churches, like liturgy and music and leadership style, and whether you put bananas or carrots in your green jello. But as long as you subscribe to the basic tenets of the creeds, there should not be a question as to whether or not you are a Christian or not. See, the Apostles' Creed has the line, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And this confuses a lot of people who don't realize that the word Catholic means universal. It, it means the all-encompassing, okay? It doesn't talk about the Roman Catholic Church with the Pope as the head of it. That's why we changed it to Christian. But then when we say the word, we believe in one holy Christian church, it, it also is confusing because it looks like we might be saying the word Christian, but what we really mean is we are one holy Lutheran and apostolic, or we are one holy and Baptist and apostolic, or we are one holy and apostolic non-denominational church. But the truth is there is only one church, just one, and it belongs to Jesus. This is Jesus' church, no matter what we may call it, no matter what the sign outside says. And by the way, if the church actually doesn't belong to Jesus, then it is not a church, no matter what it might try to say. You see, we aren't the gate, nor are we the gatekeepers. Jesus is. 
What are the challenges of a church like ours is that we think that baptism and confirmation give us an all-access pass to the church in heaven? We just walk wherever we walk, and when people say our, see our all-access pass, they know that not only do we belong there, but we have authority. Oh, and our all-access pass should deflect any pain, hurt, disease, or negativity from us. That's not what baptism and confirmation are all about. And just because you are baptized and confirmed, that doesn't mean that you are guaranteed entrance into heaven. Now, I need you to listen carefully because I don't want you doubting. But I need you to understand, if you do not believe in Jesus, if you reject Jesus, if you reject the church, if you reject the Bible and the teachings in it, then flashing a baptism or confirmation certificate isn't going to do you any good. Jesus sees your heart, not your trophies, your certificates or your accomplishments. You may have noticed that at our church a number of years ago, we went with RFID locks. You know, that's the little electronic ones where you just put up a key card and it unlocks. As long as you have a key card, you can just hold it up and open the door. Now, the problem is the key card doesn't know if you're the person who's supposed to have that key card or not. So the lock, by the way, if you hold the key card up, it doesn't say, oh, I know who you are. Come on in. It just says, oh, you've got a key card, so you have an entrance. That's the way a lot of people view the way that it should be when it comes to your baptism and your confirmation, whether you believe in God, whether you practice your faith or not. I've got a friend who has a school in an area that can be very dangerous at times. They used to have an RFID system like ours. The problem was uh, one of the teachers lost their card, and a homeless person came in, was able to use it, and walk right in. So now they've changed it. So yes, you have to have the key card, but then you have to put your finger on there. Oh, I know, that opens up all sorts of debates about personal freedom and information sharing, etc. But you see, they decided that the children inside the school were so important that they didn't want to take the chance that someone would get in who's not supposed to be there and who would be a danger to them. For Jesus, we can hold up all the certificates and awards and church attendance cards that we want. But what he really wants to see is our soul. Because only our soul that longs for God is going to let us pass through the gates to heaven. In John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, nobody comes unto the Father except through me. It was not a threat. It was words of comfort. It was words of promise. A few years back, I got to go on a tour of the Pentagon with one of our members. Now, it was obvious I didn't belong there, okay? I don't have a card and all that access. and I couldn't get in even if I had my Dick Tracy watch in to let them know that my dad is a U.S. Marine and so were my uncles. That, that, that wasn't enough. I had to give them my ID, but even that wasn't enough. I had to have a sponsor, someone who agreed to be completely and totally responsible for me the whole time that I was in the building. And they made it very, very clear. I was not allowed to go anywhere in the building without my sponsor except the bathroom. And my sponsor had to be right outside the bathroom so that when I went in and came out, my sponsor was right with me again. Now, as long as I was with my sponsor, there was no worries about the guard showing up and throwing me out the door or putting me into one of those rooms that has lots of cameras and no doorknob on the inside. We are living outside heaven's gates right now. And even in our post-resurrection, post-Easter shouts of hallelujah and he has risen, Jesus doesn't say that we live in a safe place. He doesn't say that there aren't bandits, thieves, death, disease, hurt, or pain. In fact, Jesus names the bandits. He says they are real. 
and they do have a tiny bit of power over us. And that's why we go to the next metaphor. Jesus said, I came so that you could have life and have it abundantly. While that seems like a paradox or oxymoron, considering he also said the world is full of bandits and thieves and other painful things. It's why we have to go back to the beginning where he said, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus' entire life was lived in the reality of the mess, of the human reality, the, the mess that we've made of our lives, of this world, pretty much everything we've touched. Jesus overcomes that dark reality, not by ignoring it, but by dying for it. Through the cross and empty tomb, Jesus is able to promise that even in the midst of all the things that hurt and harm and destroy, all of those thieves and bandits, the power and love of God that guarantees the things that truly matter, the things that are eternal, it guarantees that they cannot and will not be taken away for those who know the voice of the Good Shepherd. See, in Romans 8, St. Paul says, nothing can separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. As long as we are listening to His voice, holding on to Him, Jesus says we don't need to worry. The only thing that can separate us from God is us. If we choose to listen to another voice, if we choose to wander off on our own, if we choose to become our own shepherd, it's not going to work. But by holding on to Jesus and following His voice, on that day, whenever it may be, that you come to the gates of heaven, you won't need to worry. The gate won't open for you but it will open for the Good Shepherd. And as long as you are with the Good Shepherd, you can walk right through into the arms of a Heavenly Father and the joy and the peace that He's had waiting for you long before you were even born. It's never been about us having enough to open the gate. It's always been about us staying close enough to the Good Shepherd so that when the gate is open for Him, we're able to walk right through. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.